is from Philippians 3.20 through 4.7. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God. All this week, while I was uh, preparing this message, it, it occurred to me that it feels like I just kind of broke <laughs> uh, off from preaching last week, and I'm just going to pick up this week. This, in some ways, is really a continuation of what I talked about last week. And last week, the passage said that some people, some people worship a god of the belly, and instead, they do not look to this Jesus, this Jesus of the resurrection. And um, today I want, to, uh, the, the, I want to continue with that message. There's a certain structure in the way Paul writes his epistles, the, the, the letters that Paul writes to the churches. And um, many of you may not know this, but the, he typically, in the front part of the letter, what he does is he talks about the gospel. He talks about the promises that are given to all those who believe in the resurrected Jesus and the, those things that we have because of him and what he's done for us. And then in light of these things, so you notice right here in this text, it says, therefore, therefore, I mean, he goes on, say, therefore, then we act a certain way. Then we live a certain way in light of the promises that we're given. And um, this week, I want to talk about this. What does it mean to put on resurrection hope? Um, there are a number of you who have shared with me that this, is, this isn't easy for you. It's hard for you to look at things that are heavenly, and I want to talk about that today. And I'm going to do this in, now I, I know I'm, I'm going to switch it up. I usually do this in four, three parts, but today I'm actually going to do four parts. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's going to be really long. Okay, so I'm going to, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to do a, a meaty introduction, and then I'm going to try to do, hit three quick implications. Um, here are the parts. My introduction is the power of resurrection hope. And then the first of the three implications is, one, um, the, there's a priority of people and relationships if the resurrection is your ultimate destiny, if that's your great hope and promise that you cherish in your life. Uh, the second implication, do you have peace or is your life filled with anxiety? Peace versus anxiety. And the third one is joy. Rejoice. The scriptures say rejoice. That's the third and last part. I want to talk about rejoicing. Choosing joy, even if things are hard. Okay? Um, let me talk about um, the power of resurrection. Last week, I, I gave you this illustration, and I hope it will, it will stay with you. 
Um, I, I think it will, it will be helpful. Uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a preacher, one of the hardest things in preaching is, is illustrations. Um, every week, uh, that's, um, I'm like, I'm like I'm, my, my mind is always on trying to think about illustrations that connect to the passage. There's a lot of parts of the Bible that I, I, I know. It, it's like a, it sounds like kind of blah, 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 theological this, doctrinal that, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and, and then even if you've been in the church for a while, there's a certain language that some, you know, we talk about. There's, some people call this Christianese. We, we, we tend to fall into ruts of the way we even talk. And um, the challenge of illustrations to help make something that seems like it's very deeply familiar come alive. And um, last week I gave you one, which I hope it will stay with you, and it's, it's the movie The Shawshank Redemption. If you ever see that movie, I think it's an absolutely, it's just, it's a, it's just almost a perfect picture of what we're talking about here. And so just to recap, if you've never seen the movie, it's, it's a movie about prison life. Um, the central character is a guy named Andy Dufresne, and Andy Dufresne is convicted of a murder which he did not commit, but he's sentenced to life, imprisonment, and that's the name of the movie, the uh, name of the prison is Shawshank. And Andy is a guy in prison, but he doesn't act like anybody who's in prison. <laughs> he has this way of focusing on life, even though the life in the prison is so bleak. Uh, you know, guys mostly just try to just hang out with guys and try to stay safe. How can I be safe and not get raped? How can I um, get my little bit, of, save my little bit of some money, and then um, use my money in the economics of the prison to get little knickknacks that I like? And uh, that's life in the prison. But Andy, though he is in the prison, he has a way of living as if he doesn't belong there. He knows that there's something outside of this place. That there is a life, a much greater life, outside of this place. I went to one of the small groups this week, and in our church we call the small groups uh, Gospel Life Families, the GLF. And a number of you shared in, this, in, this, this, in the discussion in the GLF, they're sharing how this, this is hard. I, I, I feel like I'm just kind of, I'm just, all I know how to do is to just deal with life here. And um, in, 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 very, in a very surreal way, then you're living without hope. <laughs> Your life is just completely captured by the enslavements of the, uh, of the prison itself. Now, some of you might say, come on, Pastor, that's just a movie. <laughs> You're talking about a movie, and you want to talk about the movie as if it's something about from the Bible, and it seems like a nice metaphor. Let me tell you, it's not. <laughs> There's a term that we use for, uh, in this day and age, if you look at life as if there isn't a resurrection beyond it. As if heaven is some kind of a fairy tale, but the real thing is just this world. That term today is called the secular. And it's not just some accusation that Christians came up with. It comes from a Latin word, and the Latin word is seculum. And seculum, you know what it really just means? It just means the world. That's it. That's what seculum means. And if you look at this life and the world and as if that's everything, this world is everything then truly you're enslaved to the secular. You, you are secular. You have a secular mind and heart. And by the way, it's not only unbelievers who, who think this way. So many Christians today, we're, 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 we, we've kind of picked up this habit, and it's a really bad one. And really what it is, is it's to look at the world, and this is all there is. Most of the prisoners who are in Shawshank, that's all, <laughs> this is all there is, especially if they have a life sentence. 
<laughs> this is all I know. I got to get my little knickknacks, avoid the dangers, not be hungry, not get thrown into the hole. If you do something wrong to the powerful ward, you get thrown into the hole. If you end up with the most dangerous people, you get raped. And you have your little piece of money, and then you can get little pleasures. And if you're here, then you're on the good end of the prison. But this is life. <laughs> I've given, um, actually, a much worse uh, illustration. And um, I've, I've, I've talked about this in, in previous. So if you've been with us, you, you might remember this. Um, the world is like a cage. The Bible talks about people who don't have the Holy Spirit as if they're like pieces of meat, like we're just like animals who just bite each other. <laughs> I think, and then the, 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 the stuff that comes out of the life of the flesh that is without the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, uh, it's all the stuff, greed and anger and bitterness and jealousies and all these things that we know. It's just the way animals treat each other. I think the world, in a sense, the secularity of the world is like the world is a big rat cage. Have any of you ever seen a, a, had a cage and you have a hamster or a guinea pig or a little mouse? You ever seen them? And especially if there's like a few of them in there, you ever seen the way they behave? How do they behave? If the food is over here, they like running over here. If this is the warm side of the cage, they like to go over there. And if one of them is bigger and stronger than the other one, then guess what? They bite and they, and they push off the little one. It's a competition. There's a scarcity of the food and of the warm place. And that's, this is it. And you notice this isn't the way life feels. Isn't that the way life feels? I'm telling you. We think we're human beings. We're supposed to be living on some other greater plane. And the Bible says we are because we're made in the image of God. But if this is the way we live, then as the Bible says, then, then our, our belly is our God. It's the food and the comfort and our appetites, that's all there is, just like the rats in the cage. So Shoshak, it's not just a picture. It's, it's the world. And really the deeper message of that movie is you don't have to accept the prison. How did Andy Dufresne do it? Um, some of you, we talked about this in, in the GLF this week. There's heaven, and like heaven just feels like this, this kind of unreal, far-off place. It's way over there, but like this is the world, and it's got all the pressures that I, I got to make money, and I've got to perform, and we got to be safe, and we got to be healthy, and my children need to be healthy, and we need to be secure, and all these things, and I, I've got to get my little knickknacks, my TV shows, and and, and my favorite little restaurants. But what about how can we live in a way in which our mind is not quite there, because we don't know what that's like, but it can break, it can be something else. It's something in between. We can live here, but our mind is something breaking out. And that's what this guy Andy was like. He would put a picture, a poster of a beautiful you know, actress you know, and in his case, it would be, it, it started off with Rita Hayworth and ended with Raquel Welsh. And, and his favorite one was Raquel Welsh on a beach. And he would look at this picture and would constantly remind him, I don't belong here. <laughs> There's a life. So his mind could live and treat other people as if he's out there, <laughs> even though he's in here. And you know what that is? And the movie talks about it too. It's hope. That's what it is. Hope is the means by which the resurrection, 
In our day and age, hope is just like, well, I hope things get better. It's just things will be better. That's not what hope is, biblically. From the gospel, hope is something guaranteed. It's something more real than what we think is real. And it's to look at it, imagine it, let your mind sift in it, and then let it begin to permeate the prison, the cage. And you begin to live as if you're in this cage, but you don't belong here. I want to share with you a, um, a passage um, by one of my favorite books and my favorite authors. This is uh, the great C.S. Lewis, and, and this is Mere Christianity. And there's a lot of little gems in this, in this book. And I encourage you today, I mean, go, if you haven't seen the movie, go watch Shawshank. <laughs> and, then, and if you haven't, then, and um, if you've never read it, go find this book and go just read. There's a short little portion on hope. We're talking just three, four pages. That's it. I want you to read a portion to you of what Lewis talks about. Here's the way he puts it. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking but it's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. See, hope is something you do. It's an activity. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. Isn't that strange? People think that if you just think about heaven, you're not going to make any difference here. You're just doing escapism. But actually, Lewis says, no, it's exactly the opposite. Who are some of these people? How about the apostles who set foot for the conversion of the whole Roman Empire? I know we read this Bible, but this isn't just the Bible. It's history. It's the seed of something that began to change the world and is still changing the world. How about this? Um, the great men who built up the Middle Ages... I don't know if you know this, but the Middle Ages is a period over several hundred years, a whole series of greatly violent pagan people in Europe were utterly transformed toward Christianity. How? By the hope of resurrection through Jesus Christ. And how about an example that he cites that's a little bit more recent that, we may, that you may know of, and it's getting celebrated even in, in our culture today. He says, the English evangelicals who abolish the slave trade. So there's this guy named William Wilberforce. Um, and I think, I want to say he's 18th century. I think he's 18th century, 18th century England. And there's a bunch of Christians. And he began to say the world is filled with slavery. We just treat people just because they have a different skin color. And we just treat them like property and objects. But if there's a resurrection, see, you know what he is? He's Andy Dufresne looking into another world. He's looking outside the prison as how it could be. And guys like William Wilberforce, they abolish slavery. Can you believe that? These people, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is, uh, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. 
It seems like a strange rule, doesn't it? But something like it can be seen at work in other, in other um, matters. Health is a great blessing, but the moment you make health one of your main direct objects, you start to becoming a crank and imagining there is something wrong with you. Or at least nowadays, the people who are really fixated on health, they start, like, you know, they start nitpicking at other people. Aren't they really annoying? I think they're annoying. Uh, um, you're only likely to get health provided you want other things more. Food, games, work, fun, nice, fresh, open air. Not the stale air in front of the computer. Okay. In the same way, we shall never save our culture as long as our culture is our main object. We must learn to want something even more. He goes on. Most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all. And some of you share that that's the case with you. I don't, I don't even know how to want heaven, Pastor. Except that maybe insofar as heaven is some place that we may get to meet our friends who have died, but one of the reasons for this difficulty of not even knowing how to want heaven is that we have all been trained. We have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on the world, on the prison. Isn't that true? He wrote this in the 50s. <laughs> it's even worse today. Uh, does the schools and our training and universities ever get us to think about things like beauty and justice. I mean, if you take a class where they talk about justice, people just think that's like the, some kind of a fluff class. We need to take real classes where we, they learn things like programming and science and skills and engineering because that's how we're going to get money in a real job. But if we talk about beauty or art or God or heaven, those are fluff classes. That's how our universities think. Another reason that we have a hard time even wanting heaven is that when the real want for heaven is present inside of us, we don't even recognize it. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that what they really want and really want acutely are things that cannot be found in this world. And that's true. See, if the things you really want in your life is like a hamburger or more food, then, you're, then your God is the God of the belly, just like Paul says. But actually, the things that, if you're a normal human being and you allow yourself to recognize that you're made in the image of God, your heart, your heart longs for things that can't be filled here. They're eternal things, just like I talked about last week. And there's a hope. There's a hope that because Jesus, here's what the scripture says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, our Lord Jesus. And here's what he did. He transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's the hope. All things, not just subject our bodies from death, but subject everything. Injustice, it will be subjected to himself in the resurrection world. Ugliness will be turned to beauty. It'll be subjected to himself. Death, it'll all be subjected to Jesus Christ. And in our resurrection, there'll be no more death, no more tears, no more shame, no more injustice, no more ugliness, 
no more racism, no more poverty. Is this fantasy? This is the hope. And like Andy Dufresne, can you use the lens of the scriptures and look out and see? <laughs> now for the rest of the, the, I'm actually, I think the rest of the, the it's, we got one more chapter left <laughs> and we're getting to the end of this uh, book. But there's actually a lot of beautiful things. And the rest of the book is really, how, what does it look like? How do you live in hope? How do you put on, as Paul says, you put on the imperishable. You put on the immortal. We're mortal and we're dying. But you put it on. It's a, something you put on like Andy. He had this invisible coat of freedom. How do you put on, and let me put it to you, you live in hope. We live in hope. We practice and live in hope. And let me give you three ways that Paul says in these passages um, what it looks like. So the first one, he says, um, therefore, see here we go, therefore, now this is the way it goes, therefore, my brothers whom I love and I long for, I long for you. You're my joy and my crown. Please stand firm. And then he goes on to say, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. I think that's how you pr pronounce it. Um, her name, to agree in the Lord. The first one is, you know what's more valuable than anything else in your life? More than your money, more than your, your reputation, more than your status, more than your education, more than your health, even more than your health. You know what's really your crown and your joy? People and relationships. Because if you can live outside on the beach, so to speak, through the, look through the poster and look. You know what's going to really last? In the, in the resurrection, your money is going to be worthless. You think anybody's going to care what college you went to or what your achievements are or what your status are or what clothes you wear or where you shop or any of these kinds of things. But actually, the most precious things will be your pe the people that you're with. All those relationships that you have. And I think it's beautiful that in the scriptures here, it, it's so weird. It's not even just a principle. My brothers, my joy, and my crown. He actually names specific people. For Paul, he's not just talking about just some nameless brothers and sisters. He knows their names. It's Euodia. It's Syntyche. It's you I long for. And um, I, I, I've been to a lot of different funerals. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Um, Maybe occasionally they may, they may uh, mention an achievement or an award, but for the most part, almost every funeral I go to, you know what they talk about? They talk about how did this person impact the people around him? How did he love and honor and bless those people? And if the person really was strong in the peace to the people and the relationship, you know what happens? A lot of people will come to the funeral. And you can see the quality of the person's life through the mourning, through what they say about him, the way they miss this person, the way they honor this person. It's through the love and the relationships, the people. It's the quality of the people that measure a life. And you know what? That's what's going to be most valuable of the resurrection. Can you, can you live like that? And this is interesting, too. Um, all this week while I was, uh, it says here, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Apparently, these two 
sisters are having some type of a fight. They're having some type of a, of a problem, some type of a disagreement. And is there somebody in your life, maybe this can be an application of, of gospel hope for you. Is there somebody in your life that you love or you're supposed to love, but right now you're having a problem with? Maybe a serious problem? I, I have somebody in my life right now whom I love very much, but right now I have a measure of anger and disappointment, and we have a disagreement. But what does Paul say? I entreat you, sisters, would you agree, not just agree, go, let's just make it work. And that's, oh, just make it work. That's the way we, we talk about it in our secularized, imprisoned life. Like it's a pragmatic thing. But he says, agree in the Lord. <laughs> Come together in the Lord. People in relationship. That's the first one. A second one. Um, it says, it's what it says in, uh, it's at the latter portion of uh, verse 5. The Lord is at hand. So verse 6, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you another one. Is your life mostly filled with anxiety? I already know the answer. I already know because I live here, and I know what most of you and our city and the people here are like. The answer is yes, of course. Is your life filled with peace, a peace that surpasses all understanding, which covers your heart and your mind, and it is from God? Or is your life filled with anxiety? <laughs> There's lots of anxiety in this city. Um, all kinds of anxiety. If you look at the, the, the guinea pig or the little mice, you ever see what they're, do you ever notice they're like this? They're always like this. <laughs> they're scared and anxious constantly, all the time. You're, you're, you're the bigger animal. You go up to the cage, you go up to the little guinea pig and do this. Just stick your little finger in there and, just, and then watch the guinea pig just do this. <laughs> just run away to the other side because it's just filled with anxiety all the time. And and then if one of the, the and then and then if the food comes out there and then the, the, the bigger hamster goes there first, <laughs> then the little one is just scared, hoping that the bigger hamster won't eat all the food and the little one will get shut out. You know what that is? That's a perfect description of our current election cycle. <laughs> all the the poor and the weaker hamsters in the cage called America, <laughs> they're really ticked off that the fat and rich and powerful hamsters have rigged the cage for them, are screwing everybody else. And so, despite the fact that it goes, we want to elect this particular hamster to be our leader, and all the rest of the hamsters are just said, heck no, we don't care, we're going to break this thing. That's what's happening in America. It's anxiety. It's just anxiety pitched at a high level. That's why our politics and everything is just so ugly and angry. And, you know, we live, we, live in a, we live in the best part of the cage. Do you guys know that? I hope you know that. I've lived in a bunch of different cities. Let me tell you, this city has perfect weather. <laughs> it has, there's the, the weather's not too cold in the winter, and it's wonderfully warm, and it's not too hot. And it's not even dry, and the humidity is just right. It's perfect weather. 
And the people around the country are starting to figure that out. That's why it's getting so expensive. And if you want to go skiing, do you know that it's just a few, a, little bit, a, a bit of a drive, and that you can go skiing, not even in just some place, it's just any old place, but that Tahoe is some of the greatest skiing in the whole world. In other words, it's the best skiing in the cage. And you get to have that here. The beaches, the food, and all the richest, all the richest hamsters are all trying to get into this part of the cage. And so this, we got it really good here, right? But instead of being giving thanksgiving and enjoyment of all our blessings, instead, we're mostly filled with anxiety. Anxiety, what if it gets taken away from me? Oh, I can lose this tomorrow, and we feel it. And so, it's just a cage. It just owns us. But there is a pathway that there can be peace. And here's what it says. He says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to God. And the peace of God, which, which surpasses understanding, will be upon your hearts and minds. Um, Pastor, that's all you got? You're saying you should, I, I, if, I have a, if I do prayer. Look, if prayer is like eating your peas and broccoli, then of course, it's just, oh, it's like a religious duty. I just got to do this praying thing. And um, I, I hope nobody ever thinks that I, I look down on you if, you if you have a hard time with prayer, because I, I, I never look on anybody for having a hard time with prayer. As a younger man and as a boy and as a teenager and as a, as a, as a young Christian, I, I really thought prayer was really boring. I'll be really honest with you. <laughs> Pray for one minute. It, it felt like being bored for a minute. Pray for, okay, we're gonna, if you pray for five minutes, it'll like help you get more holy. You mean like, you mean endure five minutes of boredom. That's what it was like. Oh, pray for five minutes, close my eyes, and just be bored for five minutes. I, uh, my grandmother, would, they would ask her to pray. You know, we'd have these family gatherings that ask her to pray. I would go, oh, gosh, it's the worst. Because she would pray, I, I kid you not, 20 minutes. <laughs> and in, it was in Korean. So I'd say, that's even worse. I was like, oh, this is, oh. And, and I wouldn't want to open my eyes because that would be unholy. And I would, I'd be afraid that God would be angry with me. And so I'd, be, I'd like close my eyes and just be bored for 20. That's what it's like. Is that the way you feel when you pray? Your mind just kind of drifts off. And you know why prayer is so hard? Because if you're not really looking at the promises that's offered to you outside of the prison wall, for so many people, when you pray, it's like staring at the wall in prison. Well, that's boring. If that's all you got to look at, you're staring at a wall in the prison, it's really boring. But if you can know, this is the pathway to know there are great promises outside of the prison. And there's someone who's actually really listening. I know it sounds strange. Here's this guy. Andy Dufresne, he's sitting in prison while everybody else is just like, oh, staring at the wall, just trying to go to sleep. This guy's looking at this poster, and he's telling himself, I belong there. My life could be like that out there. And we have something better than that. It's called prayer. I've even said this to some of you, and maybe some of you can remember this message. If you have a hard time with prayer, you have, we all have to start someplace. If it will help you, you go, I have a hard time with quiet time. Go to the place you like. Go to a coffee shop. Get your favorite cup of coffee. Pull out your quiet time material. 
pull up a chair. I, I literally have done this. I'm not kidding. I've done this. Pull up a chair. The person, there's somebody sitting there. It's G, the person's name is Jesus. I know it looks like nobody's sitting there. Somebody's like, and then read what he has to say to you, because he's talking to you. And then talk back to him. And the other people were like, You're, that, that's, that's a really weird person talking to nobody in the chair. You know what you're doing? See, they think you're crazy because they're institutionalized, fully encaged. But you're just doing the Andy Dufresne thing. I'm talking to the real person who's right there in hope, in hope, but the hope is real thing, not just wishful thinking. And I'm talking, and I'm giving up supplications and thanksgiving. Thank you for this, Jesus. And it pushes back. Thanksgiving pushes back anxiety. You know what supplication is? Supplication is just a fancy word for asking for things. That's all it is. Jesus, would you do this for my friend? I'm really nervous about this. Jesus, how about this? Oh, you said this, Jesus. Oh, please forgive me. I'm really terrible at that. But would you help me with that? Supplications. And you begin doing this, and that's hope. That's practicing hope, which breaks the prison walls. And a peace can start pushing back to the anxieties that fill your life. Last one. It says in verse 4, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, one of the greatest verses in the whole Bible. Here's what it says. Rejoice in the Lord always. And by the way, if you missed it, again, let me say it again. <laughs> again, I will say, in case you missed it, I'm going to say it again. By the way, did you, in case you missed it, let me just say it one more time. <laughs> what do you say? Rejoice. Rejoice. C.S. Lewis says in another place that joy is the serious business of heaven. If joy is the serious business of heaven, it should be the serious business of hoping in heaven while we live in the prison. And I know that there are some Christians who when they meet someone who comes into the church and they're feeling sad or they're feeling kind of angry or unhappy and they're like, well, we should all be joyful now. And like they treat joy like it's some kind of a Christian-y little duty. And oh gosh, those people are so annoying, aren't they? <laughs> they're so annoying. Like, I'm a good Christian because I'm all happy, happy, and you're not happy. I mean, that's not what, that's not what rejoicing is in the gospel. What is rejoicing in the gospel? The resurrection is always on the other side of the cross. And the cross is the world attacking the resurrection man. That's what it is. It's the suffering, the fallenness, the death of this world. But resurrection is joy on the other side of it. It's, I can take this because of the resurrection coming. That's joy. And so, yes, we can mourn, but there's always an ending to the mourning. Yes, we can hurt, but there's a hope which will answer the hurt. And even in the midst of it, even in the midst of the hurt, we can choose, we can choose to rejoice always, as Paul says, if there's hope in the resurrection. It's one of the great powers of the Christian to rejoice. And I want to close with this. Um, have any of you ever heard of the hymn, 
It is well with my soul. Anybody any know this hymn? It's a famous hymn. Um, it's, a, it's one I grew up with, but it's the kind of thing that I'm like, well, everybody knows that. Well, I shouldn't talk about that, but everybody doesn't know that. And I, I realize that more and more people don't know that. Um, I want to tell you something about this hymn. Um, there's a story. There's a famous story behind this hymn. And the, the hymn writer is a guy, let me get his name right. His name is Horatio Spafford. And Horatio Spafford is American, and he lived in the 19th century, 1800s, and he's from Chicago. And uh, let me tell you a little something about him. Um, Horatio Spafford, he was a very highly successful, he was a rich, highly successful lawyer who lived in Chicago at a time when Chicago started becoming one of the booming great cities, not even in the country, but of the world. And um, so if you are rich, and he, he, he would take a trip to Europe, I mean, if you could take a trip to Europe, when there's no planes, you would have to take like a great ocean liner. And you lived in Chicago in the 19th century. That's like Silicon Valley today. So Horatio Spafford was like a Silicon Valley elite, except he lived in the elite city of his time, Chicago. And here's what happened. In 1871, you guys heard of this? This thing called the Great Chicago Fire. It burned down a huge chunk of the city. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine what would happen if a huge chunk of Silicon Valley would have just burned down? Not only would it devastate uh, you know, the, the 2 million people who live here, but it would destroy whole industries. It would devastate the economy. That's what happened. That, it happened. A whole portion of the city just burned down. And it happened that Horatio Spafford had done a lot of investing, and he owned a lot of property in some of these, these great neighborhoods in Chicago. And when that fire happened, it ruined him. It destroyed him financially is what happened. And then he wrote the song, right? No, that's not when he wrote the song. Two years later, in 1873, they had an economic downturn. Yeah, we, we, call it, we call it a recession. Chicago was hit with a really nasty recession. And um, and then his business interests really took a big hit, and it really kind of like really highly disrupted his life. That year, they were going to take a trip to Europe. So I guess he hadn't been so destroyed that his family couldn't take a trip to Europe. So he couldn't go because of the, of the recession, so he sent his wife. He had four daughters. He sent his wife and four daughters to Europe on ahead on the ocean liner. You guys want to know what happened? The ocean liner sank. <laughs> he got a telegram. His wife survived. He got a telegram from his wife. The news on the telegram was all four of our daughters died. <laughs> Can you imagine? All your, your financial security has been destroyed. <laughs> your property it's just, just gone up in smoke. And now your four beloved daughters have died. See? A lot of us, the reason we have a hard time longing for heaven is because we're just really, honestly, we're just really comfortable being on the, the nice side of the cage. But if you've ever been around people who are not on the nice side of the city, <laughs> the nice side of the cage, you, and then you tell them that there's such a thing as the resurrection, they're like, Really? Is that real? Can that really be mine? 
And there's a God who won that for me, and he loves me, even though I'm, his, I'm a traitor to him. How can that be true? That's really good news to a lot of people. But in our very rich, secular people, we're just so fixated on the prison, in the prison, uh, this comfortable portion of the prison, of the cage. But if you have a lot of anxiety, you're still in the cage. And if that were to happen to you, would it destroy you? It didn't destroy Horatio Spafford. He got this telegram. And then on his way to going to see his wife, he wrote the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And the lyrics go like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well my soul. So that, that's a guy, I think he's, he's better than Andy Dufresne. Horatio Spafford, that's, that's better than Andy Dufresne. That's a guy who knows he doesn't belong in the prison. And all can break around him. And yet this hope of resurrection can actually, can you say this? Sing that, it is well, and really mean it. If the hope of the resurrection can do it, that's the power that could spill away anxiety and the devastation. And then you know you don't belong in the prison. You live outside of it. Hope. Hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we confess to you that most of us, most of the time, we, we do prayer and it's like staring at the wall. And we're, we're not like Andy. We don't know how to have this invisible code of freedom. We don't know how to fix our minds on hope. In fact, sometimes we're just even cynical. That hope is a fairy tale. We're nothing like so far, we're nothing like Horatio Spafford. But this week, help us to take one step of repentance. Maybe it'll take a thousand, a thousand steps of repentance, a thousand steps of sowing hope, resurrection hope into our life so we can be even remotely like Andy Dufresne or Horatio Spafford. But give us Jesus. Help us to cling to him and speak to him and offer our supplications and help us to see our friends and our brothers and our loved ones in light of the resurrection and take one step, just one step this week and many more steps to come after that, the first step toward living in hope and not in the imprisoned enslavement of the cage and make us shine with the resurrection in the midst of all the darkness and the death of this cage, may we live in the great freedom of your resurrection. We thank you for this great promise and this hope. Fill our hearts with it this week and the weeks to come. We pray this in Jesus' name.